Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. The People C. Respondent. V. Tyrell Cook, Appellant. Alexandra L. Mitter, for Appellant. Shira Knight, for Respondent. Garcia, J. Defendant moved to suppress evidence and a hearing was held. After argument but before the court rendered a decision, the people were granted permission to reopen the hearing and present additional testimony. The court then denied defendant's motion. We must decide whether the hearing court had discretion to reopen a suppression hearing at this stage of the proceedings, after the people had rested but before rendering a decision, and, if it did, whether it was an abuse of that discretion to do so here. Because we hold that Supreme Court had, and did not abuse, the discretion to reopen the suppression hearing, we affirm. I. Late one night in September 2013, the victim, a taxi driver, picked up a passenger in the Bronx. A few minutes into the ride, the passenger, who was in the backseat, pulled out a knife and demanded money. The assailant cut the victim's neck with the knife, a struggle ensued, and the victim crashed his taxi. The assailant fled. Police officers arrived on the scene almost immediately, obtaining and broadcasting a description of the suspect. A few minutes later, two other officers observed defendant, who matched the description provided by the victim, on a subway platform two blocks from the crash. Defendant appeared to be trying to conceal himself from view. Soon after spotting him, police detained defendant. A police sergeant brought the victim from the crash site to the arrest scene where he identified defendant as his assailant. Defendant was arrested and charged with, among other things, attempted robbery and assault. Defendant moved to suppress the identification made by the victim on the night of the assault, arguing that the identification procedures had been unduly suggestive and that his initial detention at the subway station had been without reasonable suspicion. A hearing was held. The people called one witness, the police sergeant, who testified as to the victim's account of the incident and description of the assailant. The sergeant's observations of defendant upon the sergeant's arrival at the subway station four to five minutes after responding to the crash scene, including that defendant appeared out of breath and was sweating, and the steps taken to obtain the initial police arranged show up identification. Defendant presented no evidence. Oral argument on the motion followed, during which defense counsel asserted that the people had not demonstrated reasonable suspicion to support detaining defendant, namely that the sergeant's testimony that he had witnessed defendant sweating and out of breath after he was detained did not support a finding that the police had reasonable suspicion to detain him. The court appeared to agree that the testimony concerning defendant's physical state after his detention was of limited relevance. The people responded that they had other witnesses available to testify, but the court stated that this was impermissible because the people had rested. The next morning, after reviewing appellate division precedent provided by the people, the court changed course and determined that it did in fact have discretion to reopen the suppression hearing but did not immediately do so. Rather, the court explained that it would not continue with argument on the merits of the suppression motion if the people were going to make a motion to reopen, as tipping its hand or telling the people what its feeling was would be inappropriate. The people then formally requested to reopen the hearing and described the additional proof they planned to offer. Defense counsel responded and, after argument, the court granted the people's request. 
The court assured defense counsel that she would be afforded as much time as she needed to cross, examine on whether the additional testimony was tailored to the issues raised at the previous argument on the merits of the motion to suppress. Upon reopening, the people called one of the officers who had first spotted defendant on the subway platform. That officer, who did not describe whether defendant was out of breath or sweating prior to being stopped, testified that approximately five people were on the platform at the time he observed defendant, that defendant was the only one matching the description provided by the victim, and that defendant appeared to be hiding. Based on the testimony of both officers, Supreme Court denied defendant's suppression motion. A jury found defendant guilty of attempted first-degree robbery with a dangerous instrument and second-degree assault. The appellate division affirmed the judgment of conviction and sentence, holding that Supreme Court providently exercised its discretion in reopening a suppression hearing, before rendering a decision, in order to permit the people to call an officer with additional information tending to establish reasonable suspicion for defendant's detention. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 2. Defendant, relying on this court's decisions, argues that the hearing court did not have discretion, absent exceptional circumstances not present here, to reopen the suppression hearing once the people had rested. The people, in turn, argue that the court had broad authority to reopen at this stage, grounded in the court's common law power to alter the order of proof in its discretion, citing as authority our decision. We will not extend the Havelka-Kevin W. rule to situations where the court has not yet ruled on the suppression motion, rather, decisions to grant a request to present additional evidence at this stage of the proceedings should be reviewed under our traditional abuse of discretion standard. A. This court has, in certain circumstances, placed strict limits on a court's discretion to reopen a suppression hearing. In Havelka, we considered whether an appellate court could hold an appeal in abeyance and remit a case for a second hearing after finding the evidence offered at the initial hearing insufficient to justify the challenged police action. We disagreed with the appellate division's decision to do so, explaining that there is no justification to afford the people a second chance to succeed where once they had tried and failed, potentially subjecting defendants to multiple hearings on the same issue on which they had prevailed. In addition, a remand under these circumstances could lead to impermissible tailoring of testimony to overcome defects in the people's proof identified in the appellate division decision. We held that where no contention is made that the people have not had a full opportunity to present evidence, there is no justification to remit for a second suppression hearing. In Kevin W. we extended the one full opportunity rule from Havelka to a suppression court's decision to reopen a hearing after a formal decision on the merits. Almost two months after granting suppression, the people in Kevin W. moved to re-argue and four months after that, the court reopened the suppression proceedings to allow the people to call another witness. Based on the additional testimony, the court reversed course and denied the suppression motion. We affirmed the appellate division order reversing the denial of the suppression motion and dismissing the indictment. Relying on the reasoning in Havelka, we held that a judge in these circumstances was precluded from reopening a suppression hearing to give the people an opportunity to shore up their evidentiary or legal position absent a showing that they were deprived of a full and fair opportunity to be heard. In doing so, we noted that the truth-seeking function of a suppression hearing is critical, and there is a strong public policy interest in holding culpable individuals responsible and protecting legitimate police conduct. Finality is important, too, and parties are expected to be prepared for relevant proceedings with their best evidence. 
Our rule in Havelka balances these sometimes competing considerations, which are as evident in the pretrial context as they are on the appeal of a suppression court's decision. We must again decide where to strike that balance between sometimes competing considerations. In Havelka, we applied the one full opportunity rule to a holding by an appellate court overturning the decision of the suppression court. In Kevin W. we applied the same rule to the suppression court's decision to reopen the hearing after its ruling on the merits of the motion. Defendant now asks us to apply the rule at a point still earlier in the process, similarly restricting the suppression court's discretion before any decision is made. This we decline to do. A basic concern underlying both Havelka and Kevin W. is finality, described as the haunting specter of renewed proceedings after the defendant initially has prevailed. We explained in Havelka that allowing the people to present additional evidence at a new hearing would render success at the original suppression hearing nearly meaningless. The people, we said, should not get a second chance to succeed where once they tried and failed. However, that concern is absent where no decision on the motion has been rendered by the hearing court, no victory will be rendered nearly meaningless. The second issue of concern weighing in favor of the one full opportunity rule, the risk of improperly tailored testimony at the reopened proceedings, is significantly lower where the people do not have a formal decision from either an appellate court or the hearing court. We explained the risk in terms of distorted testimony designed to meet the court's established requirements. Without a decision by the court, there is no established blueprint for the people's presentation. Nevertheless, if the suppression court tips its hand about perceived weaknesses in the people's proof after the people have rested, that insight might create a risk of tailored testimony at the reopened hearing. However, hearing courts usually will be able to take precautions to minimize that risk explaining that thorough cross-examination is an effective weapon to cope with the possibility of fabricated testimony. And, hearing courts are more than up to the task of detecting manufactured testimony in such circumstances. This evaluation might include, as we noted in Kevin W., the degree to which evidence at the reopened hearings addresses specific weaknesses the court identified in the people's case, a potential factor in the court's credibility determinations in either granting or denying the suppression motion. And acute ex-ante concerns, such as the degree to which the court signaled specific concerns, should inform an appellate court's review of the decision under the abuse of discretion standard. As we noted in Kevin W., concerns about finality and improper tailoring of testimony must be balanced against the strong public policy interest in holding culpable individuals responsible and protecting legitimate police conduct suppression of otherwise highly probative evidence may lead to substantial social costs, of which the principal cost is letting guilty and possibly dangerous defendants go free, something that offends basic concepts of the criminal justice system. It is not guilt or innocence that is at stake in a suppression hearing, but rather whether the police had lawful cause to take the challenged action. If the people possess evidence showing that, in fact, no official misconduct occurred, the interests of justice militate strongly in favor of considering this evidence even if it is belatedly brought to the suppression court's attention. Balancing the competing considerations and keeping in mind the overarching goal of serving the truth-seeking function, we decline to extend the one full opportunity rule to decisions to reopen suppression hearings prior to any ruling on the merits. Absent finality concerns and with the risk of improper tailoring less acute, a rule severely constricting the suppression court's discretion cannot be justified. b. 
Based on language we used in Whipple, the people ask us to rely on the suppression courts common law power to alter the order of proof in its discretion and in furtherance of justice at any point prior to rendering a formal decision. Reliance on that power is consistent with the rationale of several appellate division decisions declining to apply the Havelka-Kevin W. rule in similar circumstances. We reject the dissent's suggestion that, with respect to reopening suppression hearings, courts have discretion to exercise their common law power only in circumstances identical to those in Whipple, where the issue to be presented after reopening is simple to prove and not seriously contested. The very point of a motion to suppress is to seriously contest the legality of police conduct, and motions to suppress rarely reflect elements that are simple to prove there can be no ready test for determining reasonableness other than by balancing the need to search against the invasion which the search entails. Brugen, 104 AD 3D 481-482 holding that trial court had discretion to reopen trial proof to allow people to submit defendants' mugshot into evidence. Moreover, motions to suppress do not raise double jeopardy concerns, do not implicate the people's separate constitutional burden of proof as to the statutory elements of the charged crime, and do not involve a jury's potential response to a sudden deviation in the order of proof. Further, as we noted in Whipple, the common law power to alter the order of trial proof remains despite the criminal procedure law's myriad statutory provisions governing the order of proceedings during a trial. That common law power must, however, be exercised in a manner consistent with the applicable statutes. By contrast, the statutory framework governing suppression hearing procedures is significantly less comprehensive. Other rules governing suppression hearings are similarly relaxed compared to restrictions that apply in the trial. The general flexibility of these procedural rules counsels for substantial discretion in altering the order of proof at pretrial suppression hearings. Accordingly, it is not surprising that both defendant and the dissent have failed to point us to a single decision in which an appellate court has used Whipple to so tightly cabin the hearing court's discretion prior to rendering a decision. Decisions at this stage of the proceedings, denying or granting a motion to reopen, will be reviewed under our traditional abuse of discretion standard. C. Applying the relevant standard in this case, the hearing court's reopening was a permissible exercise of its discretion. Under the abuse of discretion standard, we are not free to substitute our judgment for that of the court of first instance when conflicting facts and inferences reasonably support a decision for or against a certain result. Instead, the question is whether the case presented shows no room for the exercise of reasonable discretion. It is true, as defendant asserts, that the hearing court had expressed some skepticism regarding part of the people's proof, a fact which might have led to an increased possibility of tailoring. However, contrary to defendant's contention, there is a difference between skepticism and the functional equivalent of a decision. Indeed, skepticism may not always portend an adverse ruling. Moreover, once it became clear that the people likely would make a motion to reopen the hearing, Supreme Court refused to entertain or comment on any additional argument on the merits. Thereafter, to address any risk of tailoring, the court allowed defense counsel wide latitude in cross-examining any of the people's witnesses. In light of these safeguards undertaken to preserve both the truth-seeking function of the hearing and defendant's rights, we conclude that the hearing court did not abuse its discretion. Nor can defendant claim any unfair prejudice. The hearing and rehearing occurred over the course of two days, as opposed to the months-long period in Kevin W. The court denied defendant's suppression motion less than a week after the hearing and rehearing. 
and the additional witness should not have come as a surprise as it was one of the officers who initially spotted defendant at the subway station. It is also worth noting that, although Supreme Court had focused on what reasonable inferences could be drawn from the original witness's observation that defendant was sweating and out of breath shortly after being detained, at the reopened hearing the people elected to rely on other, unrelated proof in establishing reasonable suspicion. Both the inconclusive nature of Supreme Court's comments prior to the motion to reopen and the nature of the subsequent proof reinforce our view that any risk of tailoring here was minimal. D. In Havelka, we prefaced our holding by observing that rules emerge and are tested against varying factual backgrounds. Those rules which accomplish just and workable results survive and expand. But a principle should never be applied hastily without measuring its probable effect. It is the purpose of the rule, rather than the rule itself, to which we are ultimately bound. The Havelka rule, given its purpose and justification, has reached the limit of its logic and should not be further extended. Instead, decisions by the suppression court to reopen a hearing made prior to any decision on the merits should be reviewed under our traditional abuse of discretion standard. The hearing court did not abuse its discretion here. We have examined defendants' remaining contentions and find them without merit. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be affirmed. Decided December 19, 2019. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.